This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Warner Hutt, who is Division Director and Professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Alabama and also the 51st President of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology. Um, how are you, Warner? I'm great. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Thank you for uh, speaking with us on this, obviously, a very important topic and something that obviously you have a great amount of expertise on um, HPV vaccination. So I wanted to speak with you, Warner, about the um, HPV vaccine. Obviously, it was initially introduced back in 2006, so almost 14 years ago. Why are we still struggling to set a standard for routine vaccination for all eligible adolescents? You know, that's a good question, and I think when you say we, I think we refers to the United States because there are parts of the world that have actually done this exceptionally well, like countries like Australia. You know, I think that we have struggled mainly because, like most things, it's related to misunderstanding of the value of the vaccine or what you're trying to prevent. Uh, frankly, I think that we took some chances in the beginning and kind of pressed a little too hard on people, and as a consequence, created a lot lack of trust particularly with our patients and, uh, you know, and their parents. And, you know, we're still kind of reeling from that. But the good news, Pedro, is actually it's gotten much better. And so if you look at vaccination rates in the U.S. year by year, whether it's one dose or three doses, we know that it's actually going up. And so, you know, I, would, I, don't, I don't want the listeners to think that we're still failing every year because we're not. It's, it's actually definitely getting better. So, Warner, um, tell us a little bit about, like, the, the three – prophylactic vaccines that are licensed for prevention of HPV-related disease. Are all three of these available in the United States, or do we have only access now to the nanovalent vaccine? Right. So there were, originally there was the uh, quadrivalent vaccine, which was Gardasil, uh, Gardasil 4, and then there was the bivalent vaccine called Cervix, so that was made by GSK, and then there was also the Gardasil 9. So in this country, in the United States, only Gardasil 9 is available. So pretty, there was a time where we actually had both stocks of Gardasil and Gardasil 9, but pretty much everything's been replaced with Gardasil 9, and Cervix was taken off the market many years ago. Okay. Not for safety concerns, but because it was, you know, because, frankly, Gardasil was more popular. And Warren, what are the, the current recommendations in the United States by the Center for um, the Disease Control for Vaccination of Boys and Girls? Yeah, so, so in the past, we had disparate recommendations whether you're a boy or a girl and but basically in 2020 those uh they were converged to make basically make the one convenient recommendation which is to try to vaccinate your children at 11 and 12 to vaccinate as young as nine and that vaccination series goes up all the all the way up to 26 whether you're a boy or a girl now as of as you probably know as of last year we've actually the fda and the aisp have actually expanded the indication to 45 years of age so from 26 to 45, it's basically a shared decision-making process between the patient and the provider in terms of whether they're going to vaccinate. So we've made it very, very easy. So you don't have to remember, is it 21 or 26, is it 9, 11, or 12? Vaccinate 11 or 12 boys or girls and try to get it done by age 10. And Warner, there's, a, I understand, a, a landmark study, the FUTURE 3 trial. How did this trial impact like, the range of eligibility of patients? Yeah, so it's interesting. So that study... Uh, Future three, which is, which is uh, we use is it called a mid adult women study, not older, but mid adult. <laughs> <laughs> made that mistake made a long time ago. Right. But um, so in the it was 
the study ended up looking at basically safe uh, vaccine efficacy and safety in, in young adult women, and uh, and basically the study demonstrated that vaccine was effective, but probably less effective than if you vaccinated the blood and bolder on women, and particularly if you were estrogen male. And uh, so interestingly, this was presented to the FDA back, I think, in 2010 and 11, and it was discussed with the CDC, and it never gained any traction. And so it's interesting how we've come full circle basically a decade later, and now that people are open, it's FDA-approved in terms of vaccinating all women legally. Now, you mentioned that, obviously, the, the, the standard is a two-dose vaccination, but I was curious as to whether there's any evidence that what happens if you just have, like, a single dose? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually one of the, one of the coolest things about vaccination in general for estrogen. So, as you know, back in 2006, it was three doses for everybody. It evolved to two doses up to 14 years of age. And now there have been several, actually there have been two publications last year, as well as some work done through the NCI that demonstrates that potentially one vaccine shot is actually as effective as two of them. And I think most of us would recognize that's probably a game changer, right? And what the reason it's a game changer is when you look at go back to the lessons that were learned related to things like smallpox and polio, where we're actually literally able to eradicate those diseases with one shot. And so I think if we have ultimately true clinical evidence that indicates that one shot is effective and safe, I think that's going to become the standard. And then when you hold reality that you're eliminating or eradicating some of those clinical issues, it's going to be really interesting. And Warner, as a follow-up to that, and I'm sure you get asked uh, by some of your patients, um, what do we know about the duration of the immune response to the vaccine? In other words, how long after getting the vaccination will one still benefit from the effects of the vaccine? So what we know based based largely on what we call the Nordic Registry. So there's a registry, there's another registry that's based in Nordic countries, but the projection is out to 10 years. And uh, and it keeps on going. And what we're not seeing, which is the most important thing, because we're not seeing breakouts in anything in a 10-year period. And so the question is, how long is long? And frankly, we don't know. So we're tracking that longitudinally. And the question I commonly get is, do we need a booster? And right now, we have no evidence to indicate that you need a booster. So what we know is that you It'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting because th- there may be a day where we make an argument that the vaccine should, sh- should be given as an infant series, mm-hmm. much like hep B. And so if we can prove that, that's also a game changer as well. And another question that um, may come up, and what do you say to a patient of yours that says, look, I received a quadrivalent vaccine, but now I want to get the added benefit of the nanovalent vaccine. What do I do about that? No, it's a great question. So if you go to the CDC and the NCIP, about this topic in terms of should you get revaccinated if you've gotten Gardasil and now Gardasil 9 is available. What I tell, tell my patients and families and friends is that if you're a woman, you should definitely consider it. If you're a man, don't use Gardasil 9. And here's the rationale behind that. Really, Gardasil 9 is about protecting additional fibrous proteins specific to cervical cancer. And obviously, only women have cervices. And the other malignancies like anal rectal cancer, oral fungal cancer, uterine cancer, those were almost all exclusively 16, exclusively 16. So there's no benefit to getting Gardasil 9. So I think if you have a daughter and you're interested and you have the means to do it, I definitely would do it. I would recommend my children do it as well. But that's the way I tell it. It's, it's in, in a way, you could argue that Gardasil 9 is almost a gender-specific type of vaccine. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So you, you referred to this uh, a little bit earlier. You, you sounded optimistic about... Um, how we're doing in the United States uh, uh, with regards to the vaccination rates. 
um, how are we doing? And would you say that most states are equal in terms of their vaccination rates, or do we have disparities among states? Yes. So most of us rely on the CDC, what's known as the NIS team survey, or the National Immunization Survey uh, data. And so as of 2019, what we know is that in the entire U.S., about 50% of uh, you know adolescents are getting at least one shot. Actually, it's not just that. It's actually 50% are getting all three shots, and it's mm-hmm. about 60% of high end are actually getting one shot. And but it varies state by state, right? And so, and I know you have seen this heat map where there were, you know, rates higher rates of cervical cancer occur in certain areas of the United States. I live in Wyoming. You live in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Texas, Southeast region of the United States, the Appalachian. Well, those are the same areas that don't vaccinate, right? So, you know, that's a problem is that we, we need to do a better job, but I would say that still that, you know, you know, even though vaccinations are going up, the underserved are still not getting vaccinated, and that's really not what the problem is. But areas like the Northeast, California, they're doing a great job, but that's not where you see cervical cancer necessarily. Right. And, and Warner, what about gender disparities? Are, are the boys getting vaccinated now at the same rate as girls, or are girls still uh, vaccinated more frequently? No, it's girls definitely are getting vaccinated much higher than boys. It's about 15 to 15% higher than men compared to women. So, you know, we're hoping that that margin of error is over time, but it's def- there's definitely differences between them. And, and as a follow-up to that, uh, uh, do you know if the vaccination rates are similar among whites versus, like, Latinos or African Americans? No, there, there's certainly dif- there are certainly differences. What's interesting is that um, not only based on race, but we also know that based on socioeconomic status, there are differences as well. And actually, there's some indication even that some individuals who are at a lower socioeconomic level are actually vaccinated at a higher rate. So it's kind of all over the place, but at least in my state, what we know is that definitely uh, African Americans are not getting vaccinated as often as and th- this may be somewhat of a sensitive question because there may be those who uh, are not so much in favor of the vaccine. And they question, you know, are we really seeing a decline in pre-invasive disease and invasive cancer in the U.S. since the initiation of the vaccine? Are we? Oh, 100%. So I think that we all go to one country to understand what the population health rate is vaccine, and that's Australia. And, and I think as you're probably well aware of, you know, the country of Australia has made the bold claim that they will likely eradicate cervical cancer in the country in the next 20 years, which is actually quite amazing. So initially what they saw was a precipitous drop in January, which which is also caused by HPV, and what they're starting to see is a light drop in abnormal cytology, high-grade abnormal cytology, as well as pre-invasive disease. Invasive cancer is a little bit of a much later marker, as you know, that it takes time to track, but based on that, there's nothing to suggest that we're not going to see a dramatic drop in and, and Warner, obviously, um, the side effects, and, and that's one of the biggest claims for those who do not advocate for routinely vaccinating. And I'm not specifically talking about the minor side effects of the site of injection itself, but what are some of the you know more serious concerns, and should we really be concerned about these side effects? Yeah, I mean, I um, so this is it's a really interesting question, David, because you know because of the internet. These are just days that report adverse events with the vaccines, which can be basically done all online. You could argue that the HPV vaccine, you know, each of all vaccines is probably the most scrutinized vaccine in the world per se. 
and literally hundreds of thousands of women have been followed, both in the U.S., Canada, and Europe, and the safety profile of the vaccine is minimal. Now, unfortunately, most patients, most parents get their information off of social media and social media is awful for us. But based on actual true scientific merit and data, in fact, we know that the vaccine is remarkably safe. Um, you know, there's concerns of, for instance, that it might cause Guillain-Barre syndrome or other autoimmune diseases. That has been largely disproven. And, you know, there was a concern, frankly, that, that might, it might cause premature ovarian failure. That's been disproven as well. The main side effect, like we talked about, is really, you know, basically kids passing out and being <laughs> lightheaded. And that's why they put in the label that you need to watch your, watch your child for about 15, 30 minutes and have them sit down and put them in the office. But I really think it's important for the, the listeners to understand that a vaccine is perhaps one of the safest things that you can do. And it's unfortunately gotten a lot of heat for that over time, and I think we've proven that point that we really need to keep that in mind as well. Great. And, uh, Werner, um, are, have we reached the limit, or are there new vaccines now on the horizon that are even better than what we have now? Yeah, so actually at my own institution through uh, the major grant that we have, we are investigating a vaccine that what we describe as being pre-market-driven, meaning that it's not drug-specific. So we've actually tested things essentially all other types of ingredients based on what we find in, based on the L2 subunit of uh, things like Gardasil, based on the L1 subunit. So we actually even probably have a phase one trial looking at that. The other thing that I think is really cool is that we actually have some ongoing work at looking at alternative ways of giving a vaccine, specifically for COVID. Mm. And so there have been investigators who've been able to engraft a vaccine in things like potatoes and bananas and that kind of <laughs> thing. We're actually looking at a different oral formulation that shows that as well. The other thing that is actually really important that people don't think about that people like at the, at the Gates Foundation are highly familiar with this is heat stability. So you go to a lot of these countries, sub-Saharan Africa, which has just an enormous rate of cervical cancer, if you leave the vaccine on your dashboard, it's gone, right? right? And so we actually are, we actually have a heat-stable formulation as well, so you don't have to worry about some total culture and supply chain situation. So I, I think there are really cool things that are coming on, on board, but m many of them are related to just basically how to administer it and how to keep it stable. I see. And are there any new exciting trials? You talked about some of the trials in your institution. I've also read about this uh, particular trial called a great name, Escudo. Or, or shield in Spanish. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the Escudo trial is a trial that's going to be conducted in Juan Castelli in Ecuador. And in fact, the NCI did a fairly large uh, bivalent vaccine trial in that Juan Castelli region. And what they noted in their initial analysis, and again, it's not a pre-specified endpoint, is that in fact, women who got one shot were highly protected. This trial is the trial to basically answer or debunk the question about whether one shot is better than no shot or two shots. And so it's going to take a while for them to enroll this, but if the study is positive, you can pretty much guarantee how we vaccinate in the long term is going to be better. That's why I think this is perhaps the single most important study that we have. So Warner, obviously you, you have been a, a key leader in this uh, field and highly respected in, in our field of gynecologic oncology. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. Will we ever eradicate cervical cancer? You know, so it's funny because I was having this debate with some other people about whether the word actually, whether the word should be eradication, elimination, it's got semantics. The short, the short answer to your question 
is I am very confident in the next couple of years that cervical cancer will be one of these diseases that we rarely ever see. And, I mean, I don't, it's hard to say you can eradicate it, but I think it's going to be one of those things that basically we might see a case every two or three years. It's going to take time for us to get there, but there's no question in my mind that we have the ability. The only challenge are the things that you asked in the very beginning, which is the social stigma the misunderstanding related to the vaccine, the cost of the vaccine, how do we get it to the public, but there's no question that the vaccine is there. It's, it's on us to make sure that the public understands the value of it. So Warner, obviously it's been a, a great opportunity. We'd love to keep talking with you. I know you're busy, you have a full agenda. Any closing remarks you'd like to make to our audience? No, I think that this is, um, it's timely. Um, you know, I think it's exciting as a gynecologic oncologist to be a part of this, but see a time in which we're legitimately talking about eliminating one of the cancers that we treat. Um, I'm pretty sure that gerontologists back in the 60s and 70s would never dream of that. It's really quite amazing now. And I think it's, I think it's an ex- a truly exciting time. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for all the great contributions that, that you've made, uh, certainly for all that you've contributed to the care of women with cancer. Thank you. No, thanks for having me.